You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. H-Town Hoops Podcast, Episode 3 with Brandon Scott and Adam Spillane. we got our guy Austin Mendez producing this bad boy behind the scenes. We appreciate it. Appreciate y'all for being here with us. And this time, Adam, we are coming off a Rockets loss. And we mentioned the last time we were together that most of the games that we will be reacting to, a lot of the episodes that we will be doing, would be reacting to a loss. So that was what was unique about the last episode, that we were reacting to a win. Sort of back to reality, some of the same old stuff that you're seeing from the Rockets as they continue with the with their young player struggles, if you will. Um, this was a competitive game, an entertaining game, though. Uh, one of runs, if you will, with the Warriors getting off to a really hot start. The beginning of the game was the Clay Thompson show by all intents and purposes. I want to say by the first quarter, by the end of the first quarter, the Warriors had 40 points and Clay Thompson had 20 of them. Um, and, and and the Rockets themselves had 28. So it was 28-20 Rockets Thompson, you know. Uh, without even counting what the rest of the Warriors were doing. But then the Rockets, of course, bounce back uh, really towards the end of the first quarter. They kind of start getting things together a little bit, and then they go on that monster run in the in the second quarter that made the game competitive. So to to bring it back in, in terms of the, 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 the talking points and what our takeaways from this game was, for me, I'll just say that the first half, first point here the first half was really a a highlight and really to me about the rookies and the bench thought it was a really nice game for the rookies and the bench Jabari Smith Jr. probably seeing him feel or look like he felt as comfortable as you felt like you've seen him look for in several games right he's kind of had this this streak especially since he was injured for a little while or sick I should say for a little while and hasn't really been great I should say but he looked really good today. I thought the obviously, like we mentioned, the first quarter was awful. But when they put in those reserves and Tari Eason and uh, Usman Garuba and KJ Martin, which I know those are second and third year players, but Eason and and Jabari Smith to speak to the rookie point were both excellent in this game. Did did it feel that way to you? Like the most positive takeaway for the Rockets were the performance from Jabari, Tari, and the, the effort that they got early from their bench? Honestly, the biggest takeaway for me was uh, Kevin Porter Jr. I just thought he was just terrific all around, um, just did everything really, really well, especially offensively, defensively. It wasn't great, but that's a really hard team to defend. I did think Jabari Smith probably played his best game. Um, just like I think you said it really well. He, he just looked more comfortable, and I think a lot of that had to do with having Kevin Porter Jr. back out there. And I'll get into some of that, you know, in a minute. But that bench unit that you talked about, it was just so disruptive. 
and they get their hands on everything and they're able to create easy buckets that way by forcing some turnovers, by getting out in transition. I thought the Rockets half court offense, especially early in the game, was not very good. Uh, I thought defensively, that's a really hard team to defend. I mean, it just is. It's especially if you've never seen it before. Everything moves so quickly when you face those guys, and everything the Warriors do is done with a purpose. So they got they fell behind just because they had guys on the floor who they had who had never faced that before. Jabari Smith Jr. had never faced the Warriors offense before. And you can watch it on tape all you want, but until you actually see it on the floor, it's really hard to understand just how fast they actually go with their passes, with their screens. You know, they pass the ball and they keep moving. I mean, it's just, it's a constant thing. And uh, it's just not easy to play against. So I, I thought that they were, they, they got, they, they seem to get a little bit better uh, with that defensively as the game went on and it took her leak her herculean efforts by clay thompson and steph curry to beat them which i think is they'll come out of that you know as a positive that it, it took two great players historically great players to have to play great games in order to get a win yeah so it's interesting that you mentioned kevin porter jr is your main takeaway i mean i think he was clearly their best player uh for me i feel like i've seen this from kevin like i I know that he's capable of a game like that. We've seen him play like that before, and to me it's just part of the progression. I think we've – I mean, we've talked plenty about KPJ uh, over time. Um, I guess we just started this podcast, but, like, when we're not on this show, we've talked about him plenty, um, and we'll talk about him, I know, a lot throughout the year. But what was it – what do you? What did you think he sort of tapped into? Obviously he had, as you guys can see, they had 30 points, five rebounds, six assists. Um, I thought personally there was a good overall game by him um, as a I know you see six assists, but as a creator and as a uh, shot maker, what what stood out to you about his game specifically against the Warriors? Just the way the offense ran. It's just different when he's out on the floor. And you saw this on Friday night. The offense was just really bad against Indiana. It was, it was bad. And I think a lot of that can be that he wasn't out there and they need him as a guy who can get to the rim, who can create for others, who can make shots and not having that on Friday really stood out. And some of the stuff with Jabari Smith, Kevin Porter Jr. Passing really helped him because Porter is able to find Smith and he's able to deliver good passes that make it so that he can just catch and shoot. And there was one play against Indiana on Friday where it was Jalen green and Green kind of came around a screen and delivered a pass to Jabari. And he was kind of open. He, he wasn't like wide open, but the pass was poor. It was just an inaccurate pass. Uh, Jabari had to reach down to catch it. So then he has to come all the way back up to try and get the shot up. And it was a poor shot. And a lot of that has to do with the pass. And remember when they traded for Carmelo Anthony years ago. And the big thing was that, well, Carmelo hasn't shot the ball well because he's playing with Russell Westbrook. And he's not playing with a good passer. You get him in Houston and he's dealing with, you know, James Harden and Chris Paul, they're delivering him perfect passes in the shooting pocket where he can just catch the ball, go up and take the shot. That makes things so much easier for a shooter. And you could see that Jabari Smith was so much more comfortable last night with the shot because he was catching the ball and just able to, he's basically a perfect shooting pocket. That's I think that's why it's so important to have Porter out there because he is their best passer. He might not be their most like dazzling passer. That's probably Shingun. But in terms of just like accuracy and getting the ball to where it needs to be, I think Porter's probably their best. Yeah, that that's the thing that stood out to me about Jabari, and I'm glad you're highlighting that it was it was Porter that was setting a lot of that up. 
because the thing that I mean, offensively with Jabari, the word is great spot up shooter or potential has the potential to be a great spot up shooter, but also can give you a little bit of pull up. Like, you know, if, if there's just, you know, a one dribble uh, picking his spots and like those passes have to be right too, you know, in rhythm so you can kind of make your move. And I thought there were examples of, of both of that with Jabari, both as a as a spot up shooter and as a pull up threat. But based off of, to your point, how he was being set up by guys like Kevin Porter Jr. Now, look, I'm going to have fun a little bit just in, in real quick here. Since you mentioned the Pacers game, we're not going to we're not going to go to we're not going to go. Well, but I, we're not going to go deep into that game. Needless to say, no need to waste our time or the listeners. But I've got to ask, since one of them you pointed out from the Pacers game and then the other one from the Warriors game, I think we both pointed out and everybody pointed out because it was so damn bad. But worst moment, which moment was worse of the last two games? That lazy ass Dacian Knicks pass that had uh, that had my man uh, Brian Hollins like <laughs> saying, oh, no, you know, like as as it's happening or Jalen Green, who at the moment had to have been the fastest player on the court for either team getting an eight second violation uh, during the game, not, not, getting, not getting the ball up the court in eight seconds. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To me, the eight-second violation was just was really bad. And you look at and and it's more situational in that spot where um, it's a tie game. It's the end of the third quarter, and you're going into that possession. The shot clock is off, so at worst, the game is going to be tied going into the fourth. Like that's that's the worst case scenario. Is the game is tied? You're going to get the last shot. You've obviously had a very good offensive game, so it, it, you should be able to take a lead into the fourth quarter. And then they don't even get a shot up and they don't even get an offensive set. And so not only do they turn it over, but now the Warriors get the ball. And what happens? The Warriors execute their offense perfectly because that's what they've been doing for more than a decade. Clay Thompson gets a three. And now all of a sudden you go from at worst case scenario, we're tied going into the fourth quarter. Now we're down three and we have, you know, kind of that play that is just, it's just a bad play. So now to me, the Knicks thing was bad. That was a bad pass. It was a lazy pass. There was no purpose to it at all. But situationally, the eight-second call was so bad. That, that That's the sort of stuff that cannot happen under any circumstance. Yeah, the the Knicks pass was harder to watch, and the, the Jalen Green moment with the eight-second violation was harder to conceptualize. Like, how did, how did this happen? At, at least, you know, the Pacers kind of made a play. You know, TJ McConnell kind of did something on the on the steal or on the bad pass with Knicks. But the Warriors didn't have to do anything. They just sat there, and Jalen Green just gave them the ball. So, to me, that was the worst play. What was the deal with Jalen Green? Uh, you know, he he's had or had had that streak. Last time we talked, he'd had a streak of really good games. We talked about that. 
this game, I couldn't really figure out what was the deal with him. I mean, the best thing he did was get to the line. Um, had 16 points, was only four or five from the field, one or eight from three. Well, you think it was just a matter – was it just a matter of shots not falling? Did you feel like he maybe didn't – wasn't taking the best shots? Like, what was the kind of the – you think this wasn't a, a, a good Jalen Green night? He's had a couple of them over the last week or so where it just the shots haven't been falling. Um, the turnover – he didn't have – technically, he didn't have a turnover last night. Um, but he obviously had the eight second call that just goes down as a team turnover and not a personal turnover. So I don't know, just something hasn't quite been there. I don't know exactly what it is, but, um, it's just one of those things where I guess it's going to happen in a long season. All right. Let me ask you this because I was, I was impressed for a stretch there, at least with the play of KJ Martin, who's somebody obviously we've talked about plenty and I just, man, I look, I look at this, and, you know, I was really excited about the fact that, you know, KPJ didn't know – I didn't know he was going to play until right before the game, at the Texans game, consuming that mostly throughout Sunday. So I actually didn't realize KPJ was for sure going to play until uh, right – you know, right as I'm watching the pregame broadcast, glad to see that there was their regular starting lineup out there against the Warriors' regular starting lineup, you know, most fun to watch. Uh, with everybody's at full strength. But then I look at K.J. Martin come off the bench, and we were hitting on it earlier about how, how good the bench was and how much energy they gave him. At what point does K.J. Martin play his way into this starting lineup? Like, I'm not I'm not trying to say exactly that he's a better player than Eric Gordon, like, but I feel like he offers you something different. But between what he offers you athletically, which has always been the case, and some of the development that we've talked about now in previous episodes with from his handle to his shot and even even what he's doing defensively, at what point, if ever, does K.J. Martin play his way into the starting lineup? I think it'll just be situationally. I mean, you saw it the other night where Kevin Porter Jr. didn't play, so that moved him into the starting lineup. I think that you know, as long as Gordon is going to be here, he's going to start. Uh, I don't think it necessarily matters you know, who starts, who comes off the bench. He's going to, you know, Martin's going to play 24 to 30 minutes every single night. I think that's fine. I, so, um, you know, maybe. Well, see, 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 to me, I guess, I guess the, the point where, where not that it actually matters in the bottom line of what happens in the game. Cause like you say, he's going to play his minutes to me, I guess it just sort of signifies his development and his place within the franchise. Like, Hey, he's playing, he's now he's a starter, like for whatever, maybe it's cosmetic, but and superficial, but. You know, like there, there does seem to be something there about, hey man, this guy went from this to that. No, you're you're absolutely right about that. Like he has earned the opportunity to be mentioned in that conversation because I think that when Porter didn't play on Friday, my assumption would be, okay, well they would just slide Knicks up into the starting lineup, and that's kind of the easy one for one switch. They didn't do that. They instead put Martin in there. And then they just slid Gordon and Jalen Green up to both to the two guard spots. So I think that's where that consideration goes into play. But I, I do think that he's been good. And I do think that he's earned the right to, to have that opportunity to get more minutes. And he's really put himself into the mix. I mean, I think there were a lot of question marks of what do they think about him? How do they feel about him moving forward? There was the whole trade thing during the offseason. Do they feel like he's one of their guys? And I think that he's proven that he certainly should be, that he should be part of the mix for them moving forward. He does a lot of things well. He has developed to the point to where, you know, when he first got here, 
he was basically the four, a four or a five. That was basically all that he could play. Um, the offensive game wasn't quite there, but he's really done a good job of developing that. And I give him a lot of credit for the work that he's put into where he's made himself a respectable shooter. He can put the ball on the floor now, which was not something that he can do. He's a really good cutter. So I think the big thing for them is trying to figure out who he fits best with on the floor uh, and just getting him with those units and getting him with those players. I think he's had a lot of success with Alper and Shingun this season because of his cutting and Shingun's passing. So I think it'd be good to match those two's up, uh, those two up. Obviously Shingun is starting right now. I don't know how much that's going to hold, especially with Bruno Fernando due back. I don't know, maybe in the next week or so. So maybe you have that bench unit really led by Martin and Shingun, and then they try and figure it out with the guards, whether it's Gordon leading that second unit or, or you know, obviously, I mean, we're gonna, probably going to see Knicks with that second unit. So that's, you know, what I want to see is just more um, who matches up with who just in terms of of uh, lineup combinations. But he's he should be playing. I mean, there's no reason that he shouldn't be playing 24 to 30 minutes a night. Yeah, I guess what I didn't expect to be the case almost 20 games into the season. We're almost there to 20 games at this point, roughly. Uh, I did not expect to feel whenever KJ Martin or Usman Garuba spot up for a three to feel like good about it. Like, yeah, that's going in, you know, like, and, and KJ more so than Garuba, obviously, but even that is like, what, what's going on there? You know, shot looks a little funky, but thing is going in and it's going in nothing but net. Um, since we mentioned K.J. Martin and a guy who can play three, four, five, another guy who can play multiple positions and is the ultimate utility guy or has been for this team the last few years is Jay Sean Tate, and he hasn't been around, obviously, with the injury. Um, what is the impact? I wanted to get into this with you last week, but we just didn't have time, but figured we could ask the question now. What is the impact of being without Jay Sean Tate how do you feel like that's impacted this team? And what do you feel like they're getting back once uh, once he's finally ready to get back? So I wrote about this at SportsRadio610.com last week. And, you know, I asked a couple guys about it. And the one thing Kevin Porter Jr. said is that he's he's their leader. Like they need their leader and they don't have that right now. Um, so that's kind of one of the intangible aspects of what they miss without him. On the floor and from a basketball sense, they miss a lot. And, and I don't think people understand just how much that he does for them just because he doesn't put up the big stats, but you know, he, he's a guy who, like you said, he can play, he's basically played every single position for them. He's played all five. He can guard all five. Um, the shooting obviously has, has gotten better, or I think it's supposed to have gotten better uh, over the summer, but he settles everything down for them on both ends of the floor. And we've talked about the turnovers and how the turnovers have been really bad for the most part this season, especially over the last couple of weeks. It was a little bit better yesterday, but you can point to his absence as a big reason why the turnovers are the way that they are, because he is a guy who can handle the ball a little bit. He can run the offense a little bit. He's not going to do it every time down, but it is something that he has the ability to do because he was a guard in college at Ohio State. And they asked him a couple of years ago when guys were hurt, like, hey, we need you to be the point guard. And so he was able to do that for them. Um, so they lose the leadership. They lose some of the ball handling. They lose some of the decision making. And that's just at the offensive end. And then defensively, it's just his ability to guard anyone. And again, get them organized on that end of the floor also. So they they lose a lot. He's for This is a very young team, obviously. And while this is just Tate's third year in the league, 
he is probably one of, he is, if not probably, he is one of their most experienced guys out there. And so it's been a big loss. And it's one of those losses that you don't really feel until he's not out there. Yeah, Adam, the thing I really love about his entire profile, or at least respect and admire about it, is that that leadership, that intangible leadership that you talk about, really feels like, you tell me if if you see what I mean here, but it really feels like it translates in, translates into his game. Like the the leadership that he provides, sort of the maturity, the calmness, translates into the decision-making on the court. Like he's he's just a steady Mm-hmm. you know, and wise, maybe beyond his years. He's not exactly young, but, you know, was, a, was an older rookie a couple of years ago. But you know what I mean? Like sort of the wiser, steadier, mature. Like, let's be honest about this, man. This is a team that that needs as much m- mature, like maturity elements to it as it can get. And Jay Sean Tate is probably the prime example, the best example of that, of, of providing that. And has really been that, I mean, you remember this, the pandemic year was his rookie year, right? I'm pretty sure, yeah. He was a he stepped up as a leader even then, like when when things started to get a little bit dicey in the locker room and the team was sort of falling apart. And Jay Sean Tate, the rookie, an older rookie, albeit, but the rookie st- still was somebody that was willing to speak up and kind of take on a leadership role. And he's only really just continued that in, in the couple of years after that. So like I, that to me really stands out that like he's. He's like that in the locker room or sort of is at least respected in that way or thought of in that regard by his peers, his teammates. And then when you watch him on the floor, like the actual basketball element of it, he's hustling, he's guarding anybody, he's making the smart pass, he's cutting, he's doing, he's really just doing everything that basically everything that a, that a star player doesn't, but a role player is supposed to do like a star role player would do. He's doing so. That's what I think that's one element that I really admire about it. Like the the intangible and the tangible sort of mirror each other, if that makes sense. And Kevin Porter Jr. said to me, he is, if not the most important player in the organization, he's the second most important player in the organization. So that tells you just what his teammates think of him and how much his teammates like and respect him. And, and I'll never forget um, after the All-Star break last year, because they had a bunch of guys who went to the – they weren't All-Stars, but they played in the rookie sophomore game. Tate was one of those guys. Shengun was one of those guys. Jalen Green was one of those guys. And uh, and Josh Christopher was there as well. And that was the big NBA 75 weekend. And so after uh, after they, they come back from the break, Steven Silas has all those – has those four guys come up, and he asked them, who was the most impressive guy that you saw this weekend? And basically everyone said um, Michael Jordan, except for Alperin Shingun, who said Jay Sean Tate. Like that's how much Tate is really respected within that locker room. And, and there's a reason why he was a constant for them. Uh, like you said, in that first year, he only missed two games and he missed two games that year because of a botched COVID test. Last year, he played 78 out of 82 games. I mean, he's just been a constant force in there. And so to not have him has really been a detriment to how this season has started. How do they figure that out, uh, Adam? I'm curious, and maybe I'm putting the cart before the horse here, but how do they figure that out once like, – I guess how does the rotation flesh out, do you think, once he comes back? Because, I don't know. I really don't know. Because, I mean, we're talking about all these other guys who, we, who have been impressive and, and play a myriad of positions, you know, two or three positions, as Tate does. Like, how does that thing shake out, man? They played nine guys last night. 
that doesn't include they did not play garrison matthews they did not play josh christopher jay sean tate and bruno fernando were hurt you figure that when fernando and tate come back they're going to play so i don't know how everything works out with the minutes that's i mean I, tate tate it's going to be a while before tate is back but and this will be something that we probably get into uh, in the future. But what happens when Fernando comes back with some of the rotation decisions? So I don't, I don't know how the minutes are going to work out. Uh, that is a, that's, that's the tough part about having as many young guys as they have is that you've got to try and figure out a way to get them on the floor. And it's just not easy to do. Yeah. Well, and especially at those positions, like there's not, and how those guys are performing right now, there's not exactly somebody that you, want that you're like motivated to displace if that makes sense yeah you're right you know because kj obviously is playing great and even garuba like you want you're like okay let's see more of that let's see more of that at the very least until i mean until knock on wood it's a disaster and then it makes it a lot easier of a decision but that's what makes it hard right now there's not a guy there's not a, a a wing slash big or hybrid combination of the two either way that uh that is just easy to displace and just insert Tate in there even though we've just spoken to his importance if that makes sense you know like it's there is a like you as much as you want to develop these other guys you you actually need as you've spoken to at length here you need Tate out there so it's like you got to balance so now I think kind of like balance the like do you need Garuba out there or is it is it a somewhat of a luxury because you're in this development phase of like watching him develop, you know, or the fact that you got guys that are out right now and you can play him these minutes, you know, but like, do you need him out there or do you need Tate? What are you, I guess the question is like, what are you trying to accomplish at a given moment? You know, are you trying to go out there and be competitive and win the game? Are you trying to give the job to the guy that has the most respect in the locker room? You know, or are you, you know, seeing what you got in some of your younger guys, you know, and, and I say all that Tate's one of your younger guys, you know, only in his what third year in the league. So, yeah, yeah, that's a that's an interesting one. Definitely. Yeah, it, it, it's it's really hard. It, I think that's the hardest thing that they have to try and figure out is a developing these guys and b getting them minutes to where they have the opportunity to show that what they can do. And I don't think that's easy to balance out. Plus, you are at the end of the day, you are trying to win basketball games. I mean, that's what this is. That's what professional basketball is, is that you are trying to win games. You might not be trying as hard as some of the other teams to win games. But once the game tips off, you are trying to win it. So I, I don't know. I think that's that's one of the toughest things that they have to balance between now and, and the rest of the season is getting looks, getting guys minutes, keeping guys happy, because I think that was one of the issues that KJ Martin had had was that he didn't know exactly what his clear role was with the team. It feels like he has one now, but that could change depending on what happens when Tate comes back. All right, Adam, let's get out on this, man. Steven Silas, we've talked about how he was hired to do one job and sort of required to do another. But now we're a few years into it and impatience grows. And I'm just curious now, like Steven Silas is a, from what I can tell, and, and you probably know better than me, but I feel like we both have a good sense of this. Steven Silas seems like a very much universally liked person by everyone who has come in contact with him for the most part, like, I, and, and maybe if I'm wrong, you let me know. But from the times that I've been around, I like, and uh, just the people that I've heard talk about him, universally liked guy. 
hard to, you know, hard to dislike. But there's an element here of where is this thing going and who's the best person in terms of coaching to get you there. And so I know that, the, like I said, impatience is growing. We see it on Twitter. I know you get flooded with it uh, whenever you're live tweeting the game or, or tweeting any kind of uh, news and information about the Rockets. I know you probably get a lot of Silas feedback. I'm curious, man, what do you think? How long does he keep this job? Where and, and if they were to make a change, to what end? Who would it be? What would it signal? Like, where are you at on this, on the Silas status front? I mean, it, it's not it's not trending well for him. Let's just be honest. Yeah. Uh, he, they're three and 14 at the end of the day. And that's not his fault. Like, this team was built to lose. And the schedule coming out, you knew they are going to lose. Not only are they built to lose, but the schedule is set up so that they are going to lose. So, and he doesn't have a contract for next year. I mean, that's the big thing too, is that they can move on from him and they don't owe him anything in the future. So that's why it's not trending well. But my whole thing is what's the point? Like, how is it going to make them better by firing the head coach in the middle of the season? Because your options to, to replace him are Lionel Hollins and John Lucas, who are both 69 years old. Is that a great environment to maybe develop players? I don't think so, in all honesty. Um, so to me, it's – Lovey Smith said this yesterday. It's change for making change. And so the thing that you have to decide organizationally is, okay, we're going to move on from him in the middle of the year. Is it going to help our guys develop if we're doing that? Because to me, I don't see it. I don't think it does. I don't think that – kind of destabilizing you know presence that, that you do helps but I understand the world I, I understand you know the situation and three and 14 looks bad and I don't think that he's necessarily done a great job but I don't think that anybody else could have done better with what he's been given and, and this team is obviously it's incredibly young it's incredibly inexperienced and they could fire Silas tomorrow and all that stuff will still be true they will still be young they will still be incredibly inexperienced, and that's not going to change until they really start focusing on wanting to win basketball games. So if, if they if, if they fire Silas, the, the number one question I will have is, what was Steven not doing that you expect either Lionel or Lucas to do? That's the one question that I would want answered, and I don't know if they want to fire him for optics. Okay, whatever. I don't know how that helps you as an organization, though, moving forward. So I think it's a really difficult situation to be in for him, for the team. I, if they fired him in the next couple of weeks, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they keep losing. Because, again, they they finished his first season 5-46. and 46. Um, That was after the 11-10 and 10 start. They were 20-62 and 62 last year, and now they're 3-14 and 14 this year. So the record would tell you that he's not long for the job. But is that his fault? Is that the organization's fault? I don't know. To me, if they make a change in season, it's making a change just for the sake of saying that you're making a change. Yeah, you mentioned Lovey Smith, and I feel like the cross-sport comparison works here because it is a question of... Well, I, I just mentioned the quote that Lovey said yesterday. Well, well but... After I, I, yesterday's game. Yeah, but, but yeah, I, I know what you're going with it. Yeah, I'm going to say, like, and, and like you said, like change for the sake of a lot of it feels like 
for feelings and for optics and to maybe change a narrative or a conversation. But the, the follow-up question after the change always has to be, and this is why I kind of prefaced it with that is like, to what end exactly? Like, like what exactly are you trying to accomplish? I mean, this is a, this is a part of the, the discussion that, that we're having over at the radio station uh, when we're talking about the Texans, about Davis Mills, you know, like it, do you bench him just off of, merit alone because he's you know just because he's not good but also to like to what end what are you trying to accomplish and it's almost kind of the same thing with uh with this because I don't know I I I feel like for me with the the difference with with Silas would be like it would only make sense to do it or or it would only I I should say it would make sense either way because here's the here's the commonality with the two even if it's not their fault Right. Even if you say the Texans being bad isn't Lovey Smith's fault, and the Rockets being bad isn't Steven Silas' fault. When you produce a product like that, when you produce a product that's that bad, you can justify getting rid of anybody who's a part of it and that has a role in it, that has an influential role in it. You know, uh, and, and that's that's what they'll say when the move gets made, and the fans will be happy, the fans will rejoice, and then every and then we'll still see the same thing. Yeah. to me nothing would change if they made a move and that's why it's just for me that type of a thing is making a change just for the sake of making a change i don't think it helps you at all moving forward yeah that's why i was gonna say that i feel like it would it would only make sense uh in terms of having a tangible impact is if you felt like you had the coaching waiting on staff and you were promoting that person like if it was somebody that you felt good about, maybe this guy could be the next guy and let's give them sort of an audition. But to your point earlier about Lionel Hollins or, or John Lucas or whoever else it might be like, I mean, what are we, what are we doing? Are we, is it an issue of maybe trying to hold the younger guys more accountable? Do you think that they get more disciplined over the last, however many games that that Silas doesn't survive? Is that, is that worth disrupting whatever kind of continuity and rhythm and flow and like workflow that they have? Like that's, that's a, that's a question to me, you know? So it all, it all again comes back down to, to what end, if you fire so-and-so, whoever it is. And in this case, we're talking about Steven Silas. What are you trying to accomplish exactly? Are you trying to save face, uh, are you trying to pacify or, or, you know, or, you know, cater to a specific, you know, a placate is what I think what I'm going for. Are you trying to placate to a certain segment of a narrative and conversation, or are you trying to actually make a tangible impact on your team? And I would argue that, that there's not a, there's not a clear indication of fire side, like you're saying fire Silas. And therefore this is now fixed, you know, now, now your best players, your most talented players aren't 22 and under, uh, you know, and now, you know, you, you know what I mean? Like it, those things are, like you said earlier, those things are not solved just by making that one change. Yeah. For me, making a move in season is just optics. If you want to make a move after the season, that's fine. That you're, you're more than welcome to do that. And I think that it would make sense to do that. Um, but in season and playing the last 50 whatever games with an interim head coach who is not going to have the job next year. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but again, that's 
it's their team. They can do what they want with it. I just don't think it helps anything moving forward. It seems like it made more sense if it was a team with expectations and was not meeting. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like when when the Cavs fired David Blatt. Didn't they fire David Blatt and then win the championship that same year with, with Tyron Lue, if I'm not mistaken? Yes. But they were also, I think they were 31 and 10 when they did that too. So that one looked a little crazy as well when they did that. But yeah, again, but that was that also was, that was more about that. That was more about a thing that we're not talking about here with Steven Silas, which is like a personality thing and a preference. Yeah, a hey, thing. we we want this guy over that guy type of thing, you know. Which yeah. in and in that case, if your stars are coming out, and if you had stars like you know like LeBron J, you know, if you had those caliber stars on your team and they're coming out and saying we want to change the coach, then that makes a lot more sense. But you're trying to figure out everything, you know, and every, everything, every game is an evaluation at this point. So that's where we're at. Um, all right. That's it for this episode, Adam. We've got Friday. We, we, well, first of all, we got Thanksgiving coming up on Thursday. So happy Thanksgiving to you, Adam, and everybody that's listening. Um, I hope you all get to be with your family, your friends, or whoever it is your people are. Enjoy it. Enjoy your time. And then Friday, right afterwards, we got Rockets and Hawks, Rockets in Atlanta, and then Saturday uh, they got the Thunder. So we'll probably talk sometime, if not over the weekend, maybe when we get back. We'll figure it out. You know, we'll be in the H-Town Hoops private chat figuring it out. But the plan, obviously, is to get you guys um, a couple of these a week and sort of divide up the segments as well and make them digestible for you. So, uh so, yeah, we're going to do that and and look forward to it, man. Adam, man, enjoy your Thanksgiving. Um, I think I don't think we're going to be on the air at the same time. but We'll be doing shows, I think, over the holiday as well. Right. You're going to be on the air. Yeah, I got one on Friday. Yeah. OK. So, I, yeah, you're doing you're doing midday Friday, right? Yes. All right. y'all. So, y'all, yeah. Make sure y'all check out Adam on the midday show on Friday. I'm going to be on on the afternoon show with Wade Smith. We'll be at Social Beer Garden uh, chopping it up. So. Y'all catch us there. Yeah, man. And until next time, man, y'all be good.